Chapter 9 of Luke is now the middle of, or a halfway point, in Jesus' three years of ministry. He's now looking at the death of the cross is 18 months in the future. So it's getting pretty close um, to the, the death, the resurrection, and he's been working with his disciples, training them up, and so far his ministry has been isolated to one area, the Galilean area, and he started out with four disciples, remember Peter and his brother Andrew, and then James and John, he went, you know, hung out with them for a while and taught them, and then more people followed, and then he selected the twelve, and now being with them for this year and a half, they are now ready to kind of go out on their own, take like a maiden voyage, um, and see how they do. They are being trained to be his apostles. Now, sometimes we get caught up in numbers and stuff, and 12 is 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel is probably where that comes from. Last week or the week before, um, it was 12 years, old, 12 years old and 12 years sick and everything. It might be connected, maybe not, but the 12 are pretty much the 12 tribes. These 12 apostles... Um, in, when we get to Luke 22, they will reign with Christ over Israel during the Millennium Kingdom. And in Revelation 21, their names will be emblazoned on the foundation of the New Jerusalem. These are people, these are men that walked with Christ, he poured into them, he taught them, he tra- and they, they springboarded the church um, uh, Got it going. And that's what we're looking at here in chapter 9. He's teaching them how to be fishers of men. It's going to take about a year for them to go out when he sends them out. There's about a year time lapse before they return back. So what's Jesus doing during this time? Matthew 11.11 tells us that after he gave all the instructions to the disciples, the, the, um, the apostles that went on, and you can, there's more instructions in Matthew if you want to look at that. But Luke, we're looking at Luke, and this, this is all that he's going to tell us about it. But Jesus, during that time, it says that he stayed and continued the work in their own hometowns while they were away. So he sent them out. They're going out in all directions. He's staying at place, and he's continuing the ministry there. What kinds of directions did they give him? Well, they give them. In verses 1 and 2, he called the twelve and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And then he sent them out. To do what? To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He pretty much tells them minimal things to take, but he gives them power and he gives them authority. The power is an energy, a force, like a dynamite. It's it's power. It's the power of God. It's the power of the Spirit. And the authority that he gave them is the right to exercise that power. The power is the capacity, and the authority is the right to use it. And they go out, and what what is their work to do? Their work was this, to preach the kingdom of God, 
to herald this message, an important message about the kingdom of God. That was the primary thing they were doing. Um, Casting out demons and healing people, that was a secondary thing. And that was secondary because it gave... It gave a credibility to the message that they were saying. This was a huge message. It was something like, what? You know, repent for the kingdom of God is here and do all this stuff. And what do you mean repent? What do you mean God is kingdom of God and stuff? But, but, but then when these miracles all happened and they cast out these demons and healed these people, it was like, whoa, maybe there's something to this with the power. And they spoke with authority. We cannot take ourselves outside the kingship of God. He is sovereign ruler over everything. But what they don't know is they don't know the beauty of living under the kingship of God. And so until they repent and yield themselves up to the sovereignty of God, they're not going to experience the beauty of it, the blessedness of it, the fellowship and communion with Creator. So this was the message that was getting out. They, he tells them to take nothing with them, minimal stuff. The only wealth that they had was the message and their power and the authority to deliver that message. He tells them that in verse 5, wherever you go, if you are not received, when you leave the town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So for the Jew... In that day, if they walked through uh, pagan Gentile land or whatever, pagan land, what they would do when they would get out of it was they would like chuck, get the dust off their feet and everything like that. And it was because they were unclean. It was unclean. So for these apostles to do this in go to an, um, a Jewish town and they were rejected, the gospel was rejected, and they go ahead and do that, that was a huge insult. They were no better than the unclean Gentiles, and Jesus is telling them, don't waste your time with that. Don't throw your, cast your pearls before the swine. So that was their mission. That's what they were going to do. And for about a year, they were out there doing all of this stuff. What was the result of the ministry that they did? In verse 6, it says, They departed and went through these villages preaching the gospel. That was the primary thing. That's what they did. And healing everywhere. Everywhere. So, this is an amazing thing. Jesus was with his group of people, and very proud to come to him and everything, stationary here in one area. And now, these 12 men are going out, and it's going to be everywhere. The circumference kind of grew, the area grew, so it was everywhere. The word of God was being preached, the, the gospel message was being preached with power and authority, the demonic was being put at bay, pushed back. The demonic was pushed back. People were healed. This was an amazing time for the church. This is right before he's going to go on his journey to Jerusalem. He's just spreading it out. They come back and shared with all that was going on. One particular person that Luke mentions in here is Herod in verse 7. Herod had heard about all this stuff that was going on. And it says he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that they were one of the prophets of old had been risen. And Herod said, 
John I beheaded, but who is this? Who? I keep hearing about all these things. So he sought to see him. Herod, who was in charge of all the area, it was out of, totally out of his control. I mean, it was like within a year, several months period, people were talking about this. It was an amazing thing, this Jesus, you know, the Son of God, you know, repent, all this stuff. And look at the amazing things that he's doing. I mean, this truly is, is God, or, or who is this? And Herod was probably haunted by the, un, the wrongful execution of John. He knew that that wasn't right. He kind of got tripped into it. But he here, Luke just mentions that he was perplexed by this. He heard all this stuff, and so now he wanted to see for himself. He wanted to see, and he sought to see Jesus. Well, when they returned, in verse 10, they were telling Christ about all the things that they had done, all that had happened. Um, And they were excited, and they got together, and they shared all their stories. And it was pretty rough. If you go back to Matthew uh, 10 and look at, you know, you're going to be, you know, pretty rough stuff. Um, But it was mostly successful, joy, reunited and everything, and that Jesus knew they were tired. So what does he do with them? He says, he took them and withdrew apart to a town um, called Bethsaida. And so they, they went away to rest a little bit. They were tired. He's taking care of his, of his apostles. But what's following him? The crowd heard where they were going. The crowd starts to follow. And it's interesting now, in verse 11, the crowd welcomed him and they're following him. Now the disciples, who have just been out on a year's mission, kind of an internship, call it. You go to school, you learn all this stuff, you go to your internship and you practice it, and then you come back in the classroom with the professor. So now, they have all this experiential knowledge, because for a year they've been preaching the gospel, and with power and authority, and they were doing the miracles that Christ had been doing. So when they come back now, at this point, they can see that, okay, I see, I get what he's doing. Look what he's doing. Look at how he's handling it. It brought him to a new level of, 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 of a knowledge base with that um, because they had experienced it. He, Christ is the best teacher. <laughs> um, so, they're watching all this happen, and the people are there, um, and it starts to get nighttime. The day began to wear away in verse 12. Um, and they're all talking about, well, these people have been here. They need to kind of go on. And we know the story. We know the story. I'm not going to go into detail about this story. I am going to say this, though. Down there in verse uh, 13b. No, 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 no. Down there in verse 14. It says they had 5,000 men. Probably 5,000 men represented a family or or a group of people. So there very well could have been 20 to 25,000 people here. Okay, a massive crowd. I don't know how they did the acoustic. I don't know what kind of sound system they used. 
maybe the lay of the land with the mountains or whatever. Uh, maybe there wasn't as much pollution in the air. I don't know, but they, it, he, they could hear him. So there's a massive amount of people there, and it's starting to get dark, and they're concerned about the people needing something to eat. And so Jesus tells them, go get them something to eat. And their comment is, we have five loaves and two fishes. We have no more. We have no more. We have this, but no more. So we know how the story goes. They end up giving it to Christ, and he prays over it, and it multiplies. How it multiplied, I don't know. Each apostle had a basket. How big was the basket? We don't know. He had them sit down in groups of 50. If you go to Mark 6, 10, I think, um, 640, Mark says they sat down in groups of 150. So it's a, just a, a, um, a comment to say they put the people in groups so they could serve them better. Massive crowd. How fast did they pass the basket? What did, did it multiply in front of their eyes? Did they come to a group of 50 people and start passing the basket and it emptied out and then as he took it to the next group it filled up again? I don't know. I don't know. It happened though. We know that it happened. And it was no question in anyone's mind where the food came from. They all credited it to Christ that he was making, doing another miracle. This feeding of the 5,000 is one of only two miraculous events recorded in all four Gospels. All four of them record this and one other. And you know what it was? The resurrection. So this miracle is of huge importance of what it was, what it was communicating to them. Yeah, he can make something out of nothing. He did that with with. Creation. He can make something out of nothing. But to do this and to have eyewitnesses and how it was happening and whatever was astonishing for the disciples, for the people at the time. And it was food. It was caring for them. His tender, compassionate care. It wasn't like he, you know, did something out there that didn't affect them. He was taking care of their needs. It says in verse 17, and they all ate and were satisfied, and and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. That word satisfied in the Greek is the same word that's used when you're bringing in your livestock and you're going to fatten them up to sell. They gorged on food. They were satisfied. They they got to the point where they're never going to eat again. It was like total, totally saturation. And yet, there was leftover. You know, we can look at that and say, you know, leftover, does that mean that he supplied for the apostles' needs? Maybe. Okay, we'll go with that. But think about this thought. Totally satisfied is when you've had your fill and there's a peace of mind because there's more still there. Isn't it? We just got a Thanksgiving. Did any of you worry about not having enough food? And yet, there all this was, and they all sat around the table. It's like, wow. And there's still a piece of pie left. Well, man, you know? There's that feeling of, there's still more. If you ever work with, with children that have been neglected, or, um, yeah, neglected, and they, um, they're in foster care or whatever, you get one and um, a child, and 
Well, they keep sneaking off food to their room. That's because they're not sure they're going to get their next meal. So that, that satisfaction that we're talking about here is that totally satisfied. And they could have kept eating if they wanted to. It's that kind of satisfaction. So who is this? Herod wants to know who this is. Who is this? Son of God, this, this man that's professing to be Christ and God, the, the one sent from God, and that's riling up all the Jewish leaders um, that can do all this stuff. Who is he? Well, we're finding out that he gives life, he preserves life, he alleviates suffering. This is another way to alleviate suffering by taking care of their, their hunger. And he also trains his followers. I've, over my, you know, hundred years of teaching community Bible study or this Bible study, looking at new leaders and asking someone to pray about being a leader, many times I get, oh, I can't, I, you know, I can't. You know what? Perfect. Good. Because then I rely on God to do it. He will equip. He is sufficient and he will equip. And he has. Over the years we've had some great leaders. Have um, so, who is he? We know a little bit about him, but, but really, who is he? Going into Luke 18, we're going to take a look at this most important question anyone can ask. It happened while he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. Okay, that's an odd comment, isn't it? Praying alone, and yet the disciples were with him? What does any of that mean? We started out the year telling you that Luke records Jesus praying more than any of the other Gospels. Praying is a, a major thread that runs through Luke's Gospel. And here we see Jesus again praying alone, but with the disciples. Jesus, when, when we pray, we're coming through the throne. We can enter the throne room because of the blood of Christ. In his name, it's been opened up and we can come in and we can talk to God because of who he is and what he's done. Jesus didn't need that. Jesus prays, Jesus talks to the Father, he prays on a different level than we do. So he's on a level talking to the Father that no one else around him was on that level. That's what made him alone in that level to talk to God, praying alone and they were with him. He didn't need a mediator. He doesn't need divine mercy to approach the Father. He had perfect fellowship and familiarity with the Father. That was the characteristics of his prayer when he was praying. So who is he? He starts to uh, ask the disciples in 18b, who do the crowds say that I am? Because they were out there, they were hearing about all of it. Who is this Jesus that you're talking about? What is he all about? Where did he come from? I'm sure they got drilled, got drilled. I wonder what they answered to them, what he, what, how they said. They answered Jesus, and they say, well, some of them say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others that one, uh, you're one of the prophets that are old. Okay? Same thing that Herod was talking about. And he says to them, well, all the people that they just listed, all of those people were people that actually were seeking after God. So they laid that out. That's what the people were thinking of who he was and everything. And Jesus then looks at them in verse 20, and he wants to know if the disciples agree with that. 
if they think he is that also. And we have Peter, in a profound saying, say, spokesman of the group. But who do you guys say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. That's who he is. That phrase is loaded with meaning. Peter was saying, you are the prophet. You are the one promised. You are the one looked for. You are the one waited for. You are the one that we've been waiting for coming from God. You are the one to whom all the others looked. Matthew goes on to say uh, for this exchange that um, Jesus tells Peter that you know this by the conviction of direct divine revelation. So, he goes on and he does that little funny thing again. Okay, yeah, this is this way, but don't. He charges them. He strictly charged them and commanded them. That's pretty profound. Strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. No one. And why is that? We talked about it last time. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, he will rise again. The definition of who Jesus is, his identity, um, wasn't complete. They didn't know everything there is to know about him yet. There was a side to him, a huge side, that they were headed off, they were going to journey into Jerusalem and find out all about it, of who this other half of Christ is. There's a verse that used to really... I want to know, I think Paul, you guys don't know where it's found probably. Um, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his, what is it, the fellowship of his, and, and there's two parts. There's some, I want to know Christ and blah, 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 and the fellowship of his suffering. What is it? A little bit louder. And I used to really have a hard time with that. I wanted the first part. But that second part about the suffering part, but that's the most profound part and the most deep part where we really get into know Christ. And this is the part of him that they didn't know about yet. But they were going to experience that part too because all of them had pretty horrible uh, lives, torture, martyred, and everything like that. But we know that they're, they're going to reign with him in the millennium and they're going to have their names in blazed on the foundation of the New Jerusalem. So, so it goes hand in hand. And so far they just knew the part of Jesus that was compassionate and caring and heals and, and tells the bad demon guys to go away. Um, but the other part is what was lying ahead of them. So, to suffer, we know, rejected, hated by the Jewish leaders, abandoned by his friends, abandoned by his father on the cross, and then taken on the whole penalty for sin. This is suffering that you and I will never have to experience, and we wouldn't be able to experience. We would not survive what Christ went through. It had to be God, and only God, that could pay the price for the depravity and sin that has come into people's lives that we have become when there's a rejection of God. Must be killed. Um, can't kill God. 
Well, we've known in the past couple weeks that, you know, when somebody dies, they're not really dead, according to God, because their spirit leaves their body. So Jesus' physical body needed to be killed and died. Um, John 19.30 talks about that. And the soul, spirit, will separate from his body. He must be killed, and he must suffer. Um, Isaiah 53 is a beautiful passage um, that talks about verse 4 to 10. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we seemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. We, are, we all are like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his, this, his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet he, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It goes on. So, they all knew the writings. These Jews all knew the writings of Isaiah back then. They were just blinded to seeing it all come together. But he was suffered greatly. Um, and then he must be raised up. He must be raised up. <laughs> We have no hope without the resurrection, right? 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But that is the whole story. That's the total package of who he is. Who is this son of man? The Bible tells us in John 20, 31, the end of John, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He wants us to know who he is. It's not a mystery. He's not saying, don't tell anybody yet. You know, He wants us to understand who he is and what he's done out of love to save people who don't deserve nothing. And from that knowledge, if a a, a depth of gratitude doesn't spring forth, then that's a, that's a sad lot. So, he's telling them what's to happen. Maybe it fell on deaf ears. We don't know. But they heard it. Later on, it comes back to them. And then he says to all of them in verse 23, what it's like to follow after him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. 
All these people were following Jesus all over the place, welcoming him and following him and everything like that. Because why? Because he was feeding them and he was curing them and he was just so pleasant and positive to be around and the things he said were just like, oh, just so comforting. I could listen to him all day and look at all these great, this is, I just want to be with him. This positive side. But he's going to start to tell all of them and then demonstrate to the disciples what it is truly like to follow him. It's just knowing the truth about him isn't enough. Satan knows all about him, doesn't he? There's a lot of people that know all about him, but they don't follow him. Following Christ, we need to conform to his program. What is his program? He's about to demonstrate it through the rest of Luke, right up to the cross. So when he says, take up your cross daily, this is a radical self-denial. This is... um, Radical is probably a... I mean, it's like... Very few of us, I'm sure, deny ourselves to this point where Jesus is having us do daily. Following Jesus is not about self-fulfillment. So whoever told you that, well, if you just ask Jesus into your heart, life will start to get better and he'll take care of everything. Not true. Um, He does take care of everything, but it's not so painy, wonderful and everything. It's not a name it, claim it faith. It's not a, um, well, you know, well, you're suffering. You must be doing something wrong in your life or whatever. Or, you know, there's a whole bunch of false doctrine out there. Following Jesus, and, and one author that I was reading said, called it a quasi-Christian narcissism. Don't you love that? Narcissism has gotten out of hand in our society. We're not promoting self-interest. We're not going to decide we want to do something and then tell God that he's going to make us do it. Right? Philippians 3, Paul says this. Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. A daily thing about self-denial. And I'm not talking about asceticism. I'm not talking about uh, look at me, I'm just a martyr or whatever. It's a matter of walking with him every step of the way and realize I'm serving you, I'm serving you. Or I don't even want to talk to you right now. No, I need to talk, I need to stay in contact with God or I need to do this. Being aware of him all the time, open communication, knowing from his word, the commandments, what we should do and asking his help to be able to fulfill those commandments. Because complete obedience to his commandments is also a requirement to be part of his program. Following Jesus is about total abandonment itself. We saw that in the garden with Christ. Look at it again. Not my will, but thy will. That's the true meaning of love. When we put our own desires on the back burner for the person that we love, That's the act of love. Um, It's not about, oh, I love you for what you do for me. That's not, that's a worldly love. So following him, honoring him, believing that he is almighty God, creator, 
should motivate us to serve him and to honor him. When we start to really see who he is, it's, it's like a, 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 a desire to, to, to walk with him and in a, in a reverent fear not to be, to be outside his will. We don't want that to happen. Then it talks about, Luke quotes Jesus talking about the glory um, Whoever loses or forfeits his life, for in verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels. Um, glory. I kind of got a little carried away with the glory study. I mean, I was going on a tangent like, oh, this glory thing is like really, really cool. Um, so I had a reel on back. But the few things we can pull out of here, it's individualized. It's his glory, individual. It's the Father's glory and the, and the angel's glory. So glory is attributed to, to people, uh, to an individual. To, uh, it's individual, individualized. Glory, will, oh, here's, I forgot to put all my little things in. I apologize for that. I was running on a... I had pink all up, pink eye all week, and I couldn't see. Second um, Corinthians three, twelve to four, eighteen. Glory grows since we have such a hope. We are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at him with the outcome. Remember, he went up to the mountain, he saw God face to face, whatever. He came down and or he was with God and came down and he, his face shone so much they couldn't look at him, so he had to put a veil over it. Um, but their minds were blah, 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 blah. Okay, so um, the veil remains uplifted. Fifteen, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's talking this side of the cross. The veil is removed. Now the Lord is, is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We see him now with an unveiled face. Um, we see him in his word, we see him in, in nature, um, we, we experience him um, in, a, in, a, in a daily time as we walk with God. And the more we stay close to him and our eyes focused on him, we are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. I think every time we make the right decision, every time we, we say no to sin and we, we, we do the right thing or we self-abandon or whatever it is and we demonstrate the love of Christ, the patience of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, we're, we're getting more glorified. More and more and more. And that's sanctification. So we see that in here. Um, the results of following Christ, and those results are, I shouldn't let that go so fast, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this, uh, yeah. for this here, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
So when we go through sufferings, when we go through trials, God is <clears throat> perfecting us. We're, we're getting to know that suffering Savior. He's walking with us. He's enabling us. He's empowering us. He's giving us authority to do what we need to do and to stay on the right path with him. And as we go through these trials, as we go through these momentary afflictions, we grow in him and become more Christ-like. And it's got a weight to it. It's got a weight to it. It's like uh, faith is a muscle that you have to work out. And I'm going to do this difficult thing. I don't want to do it. I'd rather... I don't know, go back to bed instead of get up and pray or what, I, I, whatever it is. And, and we decide we're going to go ahead and do it anyways. We're going to exercise that faith muscle. And as we do that, as we grow, when we get to heaven, we're going to be able to hold more glory. Are you guys following me with this? Am I making it clear? Do the right thing, I guess is what I'm trying to say here. Following Jesus is hard. But if we keep our eyes on him and we keep going... The benefits are just astounding. That's us being sanctified as we follow Christ. It's an overwhelming nature of future glory that we will experience. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 says we see in a mere dimly now soon face to face. There's a couple more. John, 1 John 3, 2. Um, and even the saints... I'm going to look this one up. 1 John 3, 2. I don't know how I completely forgot to mark all these things up. First John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That's a great one. Um, and then our future, the saints' future, 1 Corinthians 2, 9. Two nine, two nine. For no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. What great promises these verses are. If we just hold those close to our minds and own them, that will just empower us to do what we need to do as we follow after God. All right, the last part of this is verse 27, where it talks about <clears throat> Jesus is saying, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Well, they all got kind of confused on that, thinking the rapture was going to come or people were going to live forever, and you've heard all those stories. So let's look at another angle with that. What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? The king, if you define the kingdom of God as the resurrected Christ, the final, we can now talk about him, and this is the gospel because it's complete, he's, he's, he's accomplished his mission, that is the kingdom of God. Those standing there today will see this resurrected Christ. Many did. Many saw... Um, Christ after his resurrection. Just one way to look at it. The risen Savior is the kingdom of God. And these are imminent. It's about to occur. We're 18 months away. So who is this son of man? Who is this Jesus? Who is this guy? It's a good question. 
Good question, but a better, more important question. When I'm doing a spiritual assessment in my office, and I get a lot of, yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to church. That's common. I say, well, who's Jesus to you? And they give me answers like, oh, he's creator, he's a savior. I say, that's who he is. But who is he to you? Who is he to you? Is he your savior? If so, what's he saving you from? Is he your friend? Do you have a relationship with him? Who is he to us? Um, he's got to be our all in all. He really does, doesn't he? Let's pray. Almighty God, precious, precious Jesus, we come to you because you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And we ask you, through you and your work that you've done, entering the throne room, we ask you to enable us, to empower us, to draw us close to you. Keep our eyes on you. Keep us in the rails, God. Be our strength, Spirit, when we feel the need to move to side to side. And we, we want to. We want to. We desire you. We want to be like you. May all things we say and do glorify you. Amen.